wanted to do, um, Paul, uh, we talked about this uh, uh, back before Christmas. You wrote a piece uh, on the Forging Plowshares, uh, cult, uh, uh, not the Cultivating Peace, but the uh, Walking Truth blog. I think um, you called it the Mystery Revealed. And um, I just, I had a, uh, and this might turn out to be um, so far uh, different of a direction that it actually misses the point that you were making. But I was wondering, um, you might just give me uh, a summary um, of it, and uh, or uh, and then um, I had a couple of thoughts, and I jotted them down this evening um, okay. that I thought I that might be decent asides uh, okay. to that. Um, but go ahead. Well, the, uh, yeah, the context was I was teaching a world religions class, and I just finished a section on Zen Buddhism. And, of course, I'd spent more than 20 years in Japan and uh, was well acquainted. I, I say well acquainted, at least I'm acquainted with Zen, but I had done a lot with uh, a Zen Buddhist thinker, Kitato Nishida. And Nishida is closely aligned with Martin Heidegger. And uh, the understanding, of course, in Zen and I think in what Heidegger was doing is very similar. And I would say ultimately that what they're doing is Hegelian. I don't mean that they got it from Hegel, but that Hegel summarizes or grasps them uh, what is often happening. And that is that there is in both Nishida and Heidegger and what they are, I think, uh, extracting or coming to that is from Hegel and is really a kind of synthesis of what takes place uh, in our uh, human subjectivity is a reification of death. That is, that death or nothingness is made an absolute, And it is made an absolute precisely by uh, its impenetrable nature or by its being mystified. Now, if you wanted to put this in psychoanalytic terms, uh, you know, Zizek reading Hegel is going to say that, you know, the big other is actually uh, representative. And by the big other, all he means is what Paul might mean by the law or an authority figure, that there's something there that's impenetrable. In other words, what, and what I'm doing by shifting from Hegel to, to Zizek is to say, of course, what, what is being examined in Zizek is something on the order of a sickness. And this is why Zizek is so, uh, uh, at least he's been up to, to recently, very much over... Uh, and against a Zen Buddhist understanding, because Zen Buddhism or Buddhism is just partaking of this kind of absolutizing of nothingness, or if you wanted to talk about it in you know in terms of an apophatic theology, that is a theology that posits this mystery uh, that the, what we know about God is on the order of nothing, and the nothingness then is mystified, and the religion then becomes a kind of pursuit of this absolute nothingness. Um, and so it's bogus. I mean, the whole thing is uh, it is a, a, a disease in, in a psychoanalytic understanding in which you're constituting something, an absolute something, purely out of nothing, and Zizek's well aware of this. So uh, I had a guest into my class, and I said, could you, you know, before we began, he was going to speak on mysticism, and I said, you know, before we begin, would you just run down for us? What is the difference between a legitimate and an illegitimate mysticism? And he was uh, from Lincoln Christian University and had studied the early church fathers and had a particular interest in the mystical tradition. And he said, 
he paused and he said, you know, I've never thought of that. I never, nobody's ever asked me that. And so he, he could not answer the question, which to me, coming, you know, just having taught on Zen, being pretty aware of what's coming out of, uh, you know, a Western philosophical tradition and the fact that these two things come together and that psychoanalytically what is in fact being described is, I think, in terms of Romans 7, that this kind of mystery that people are in pursuit of is an absolutizing of an illegitimate understanding of the other, the law, you know, the absolute. Uh, is it God? Well, probably this is the God that none of us as Christians would should believe in. You know, if we're, if we're going to be Christians, I think the, the first step, we need to be atheists. And the kind of atheists that we need to be is that the God that we don't believe in is precisely this absolute other or this God of, uh, you know, that has been reified, a reified form of death. But this is why Zizek calls himself an atheist. Uh, and, and I would say, yes, I, I think that every Christian is an atheist in the sense that the God that we should believe in, in New Testament, the New Testament, New Testament, picture of the God of love, the God that's been revealed to us in Christ, is precisely not the God of uh, an apophatic, a Zen Buddhist, a, uh, uh, you know, a kind of uh, neurotic understanding of God. So uh, I'm with Zizek, obviously I'm not an atheist. But I think that part of what a true Christianity is, and this is what he keeps claiming, an authentic Christianity is one that is, first of all, disconfirming this, you know, uh, ontological. And I, again, I think it gets to uh, the, the scholastic tradition that has seeped into Christianity, uh, that the God of the Bible is precisely not that God. And the pursuit of that God in various mystical traditions, I think, is not then and has not been in as much as it is this completely mysterious God is not the God of the New Testament. So what, we, what I was doing in that, uh, in that piece, that blog, was just to outline and say, well, can't we, not in any way to take away from the mystery. There is the mystery of Christ. There is the mystery of God. But the, as I see it, that the mystery that we have in, in God is always joined then to the revelation that we have in Christ. That is, this mystery is one that is unfolding for us. It's not deposit an absolute impenetrable mystery and then, you know, uh, in some way imagine that we can attain that through an ecstatic experience. The mystery is one that is partially or un unfolding for us in Christ. And so that would be my point is there's a legitimate mysticism. The mysticism that we have in Christ and there's an illegitimate mysticism that in fact would in some way posit God as the absolute other. Let me um, <clears throat> let me um, um, sort of give you a response that I had to the first paragraph in that uh, essay, um, <clears throat> and it it was um, an initial thought as to why uh, we might discover that there are. Uh, Christians, Christian scholars, Christians in our um, experience who um, just have not considered, because it seems to me like what you're doing is you're saying, okay, there is a mystery um, in the gospel, um, a legitimate mystery. Um, there is a type of mystery that we try to um, assert as Christian mystery or we try to um, syncretize into Christian theology that is 
illegitimate because it's really pagan. Um, <clears throat> but I, I wrote this down, and this may or may not be good or relevant, <laughs> uh, but I hope it is. Um, <clears throat> what, what if the you know the issue in our time, our whole experience in contemporary Christendom, is has been being founded on the Enlightenment, where the goal of the Enlightenment is to sort of eliminate mystery through rationality. So, what if you know what we are experiencing? We don't think about what's the mystery of the gospel. Paul uses the term mystery quite a bit. Um, but, you know, we kind of uh, have fooled ourselves into thinking we're a people who have got all the answers sort of lined up in these neat systems that answers all the questions. If you think about it, um, a lot of folks who would rail against modern science um, for, um, you know, pushing God out, mm-hmm. in some way are kind of guilty of the same uh, the same attitude is, and I, I don't want to say I'm not an anti-science person. As a matter of fact, I think uh, science is a very important um, study. And um, but there are many folks who I think um, have approached uh, the project of of modernity or modern science or modern philosophy and, and or theology with the sort of arrogant idea that they're going to dispel naive myth. Mm-hmm. Um, with rational explanations, you know, you can do something like science and mm-hmm. still have that sort of requisite sort of awe about the mystery that's still there. Mm-hmm. You know, science can kind of talk to us about origins, and science can talk to us about uh, species and um, um, evolution, or it can talk to us about all kinds of hows. But it doesn't; it, it still fails to get to the to things like conscience. Uh, consciousness or um, personhood or, you know, for that matter, memory. Um, So there's still even, you know, a good scientist, I think, can acknowledge mystery. Um, And I think a good, you know, modern, postmodern theologian will have a place for it. But do you think it's legitimate to say that maybe that's one of the reasons why you can talk to somebody who studied the ancient church fathers and that person says, Oh, I've never thought about Christianity having any sense of mystery to it. No, I think, yeah, you're right that, um, the, first of all, the enlightenment project was then one that would seemingly, this is Hegel, you know, that Hegel's going to say everything. Uh, the 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 you know hubris of the Enlightenment was to in fact try to re- reduce everything to reason. Now what you get in Kant is the positing then of a kind of twofold you know uh, understanding that there is phenomenal reality and the phenomenal reality is only that which we can speak about. So uh, the noumenal reality then is one that is held back from us that we can't approach. And so ironically, the the Enlightenment, and of course Kant is kind of the late Enlightenment, uh, project ends with this idea of positing uh, uh, in a, a project of reason the duality of that which is phenomenal and that which is noumenal. And again, I, you know, in my simple understanding, I just think everything reduces down to some sort of identity through difference. And I think for Kant, this was it. So what Hegel does, he comes along and he says, well, no, the, the idea of this, you know, uh, kind of aporia between phenomena and noumena is not a problem. In fact, that's the dialectic. And so yes. what Hegel's going to do is is going to reduce everything down to a system in which we can literally, God himself is encompassed in this system. And so that that is the sort of hubris that you want to avoid. Obviously, as Christians, we don't want to deny mystery. But what I've just described for you, just there, there's two kinds of mysteries. There's the Kantian understanding 
that I think, in fact, ends up being very Eastern-like. This is why I really think the divide between East and West, and Hegel recognizes this, and Heidegger uh, and Nishida, they all come to recognize, oh, we've all landed in the same place. Uh, that, you know, for Nishida, he's, he's going in a very good Hegelian system, you know, say, well, there's Satan and there's God, but I'm greater than either Satan or God because I'm, you know, there's the dialectic and I'm mm -hmm. the synthesis between the two. Mm -hmm. So what you get in the Enlightenment, yes, is the project to dispel mystery, but what you ultimately get is the positing then of an absolute other, the noumena, which is in fact unattainable in and through the phenomenon. If you, you know, if you would say then that God is this noumenal category, well, uh, what you end up with is the phenomena of the incarnation does not reveal the essence of who God is to us. Okay, now this is, this is the point in the, in the article that I was most interested in, um, which is, I wasn't interested in the other parts, but, um, I want. I was hoping you could talk more about um, <clears throat> the idea of uh, of Imago Dei, um, the image of God, and and a little bit more. Uh, there's a, a point in that piece where you talk about idol idolatry, idols as images of gods, mm -hmm. um, and and how that. Um, plays into what we, because you, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, that uh, in that sort of dualistic sense, you know, Jesus doesn't really reveal God. I mean, it, uh, he's he can't reveal God in physical form because it's, it's God is too other, mm -hmm. and so um, um, right. Let's see. Uh, and, and where I think I have a hard time getting my head completely around this, um, but I always kind of, you always feel like you can almost just kind of get to it and then it sort of flips away from you. Um, the, it seems like your whole view of what the gospel really is about. Um, if, if it's, if it's that, you know, there's a problem in the noumena, if there's a problem in with this other that has against us, um, so he he comes and does something for us, um, uh, apart from us, that we couldn't possibly do. Um, so that uh, he, whatever problem is now done away with, um, then uh, uh, then there is no point. There there is no. I'll probably edit some of this out because I'm not sure I'm being terribly clear. But it seems like there then that doesn't um, allow, that's all sort of uh, very neat and tidy um, and doesn't allow for this sense of mystery that I'm hoping that you're going you're gonna to talk about a little bit here when you talk about the, that sense of the image of God. Um, well, yeah, so and hopefully some, my, some stuff I said will maybe make more sense when when you've uh, said what you've got to say. Yeah, I just uh, the the image uh, in uh, Genesis first of all is uh, the word selim is the word that's used in connection with idolatry, and so I think idolatrous religion is a very nice example of the way that the original image would work. And the way I do this is, is maybe a, a somewhat different than some people. I think some people think that uh, what the problem that the Jews had was with, with idolatry was that idolatry takes the transcendent God and makes him imminent. That is, but actually... Well, what's happening in the Old Testament, God walks in the garden in the cool of the day, that God reveals himself to Abraham, that God is there at Mount Sinai, and they say to Moses, you go and talk to him. In fact, we'll hang back, you know, we they're afraid. So it's not that God is 
so transcendent uh, that they cannot attain to him. The God of the Old Testament is, you know, is one who reveals himself, uh, and it's precisely at that moment when he's appearing on Mount Sinai that the Jews once again turn to idolatrous religion, and Aaron, you know, the golden calf, uh, magically emerges from the fire. Uh, what is, first of all, I think that picture, of course, that if you think of the guy making the idol in Isaiah, he, you know, cuts the log in two, and with one half he cooks his lunch, and meanwhile, in the, with the other half, he's carved an idol. But when he turns back and he sees the idol, he bows down and worships it, so that it's like, oh, where did this, you know, here's God. And he obscures the fact, like Aaron obviously has done, that he's the originator of the idol. So what's happening in idolatrous religion, and I, by the way, that I think you can just apply this across to nationalism and uh, all sorts of tribalisms, but what gets obscured, what gets erased, is the origin of the religion. Is Aaron made that thing. Uh, the guy who sawed the log in two, he made that thing. But by uh, obscuring the origins of the idol, he posits in some way uh, that the idol then uh, is in a representative of, you know, uh, God appearing. But then you have to ask, yes, but what is the nature of the idol? Uh, is the idol itself, you know, uh, does a, a sophisticated Hindu, uh, does a Brahmin worship the idol? And actually what you find is, well, no, the idol is representative of God. Or even if, you know, even if you want to take the idol itself, in places like Ezekiel, where the idol is pre uh, it, it is pictured as a, I mean, it's a phallic symbol. And, and in this, by the way, I don't, if you've ever studied idolatry, the phallus, the male, you know, sexual organ, is the, uh, one of the prime images that's symbolized. In Japan, on every little corner, there's a little, uh, Bodhisattva or, or, or little Buddha. And actually, they're all the origin of these things. They're, they're phallic symbols. But this is true universally that, that the phallic symbol uh, is in some way key, a key representation of the idol. I'm going somewhere. Uh, uh, and the idea being that, in other words, uh, in Ezekiel, is it that they're going to have some sort of illicit sexuality with this huge palace? No, it's that sexuality is made an impossibility. Uh, first of all, it's an object. It's a stone object, and it's so large, you know. But the point is that with the idol, it's not that the idol takes what is transcendent and makes it imminent. I think, in fact, just the opposite is happening. But the idol, as Paul says, is nothing. And every good idolater knows that. Right. That is, it may be an, a reified nothing, but the idea is that whatever is there in the idol, whether it's literally the idol or it's something the idol is representing, is not accessible. It's not obtainable. It's not imminent in terms of human access. Uh, which is just the opposite of what's happening in the Old Testament, that God wants to have a relationship with humankind, culminating then in the incarnation of Christ. So the problem the Jews faced is, you know, the, the, the understanding of idolatry is not that it takes what is transcendent and makes it imminent. No, what idolatry does, it makes God or it makes, you know, this image representative of something that's absolutely transcendent. That is, it's impenetrable. It cannot be comprehended. It cannot be obtained. So every idolatry is built upon a mystery. 
So uh, let, me, and, um, let me run with that for a moment. Um, and this, um, this is something I've been chewing on since I heard uh, Greg Boyd in a sermon he preached years ago, and I if if I had to go back and find the reference, I'll never find it. Um, but uh, he was making a point about the image of God and idolatry. And um, <clears throat> when this language gets used, this is just the direction my mind goes. But I, it, I felt like there's a, some parallel here. Um, what you said in your I, – I, I copied and pasted some of it on this paper um, – you said in the, basically what you just said, the problem of idolatry was not that the idol took that which was transcendent and made it imminent, um, you know, which is a sort of blasphemy. In fact, the, was, as was the case at Sinai, the Jews sent Moses to deal with the presence of God, and in the meantime fashioned a golden calf as a means of displacing the God who was suffocating them with his presence. Now, the story um, – and I've, I've used this many times um, teaching and, and preaching when I've had an opportunity. Um, the story in the Garden of Eden, uh, which you referred to a second ago, was not that God is this transcendent thing that we can't come close to, and how dare we assume we can come close to it. The story in the Garden is God walk after the Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The story is now... Uh, here comes God to them, and it's not God saying, you can't be around my um, my um, uh, transcendence. It's them saying, no, you get away. Um, they are arms outstretched, hiding. Uh, in, um, and to me, uh, that's uh, – I had never made the connection – first, I had never made the connection between that, uh, in my mind, that story and – that the, I think the very same thing then is happening on Sinai. Um, still, no, keep the transcendent away. We prefer this image. Um, then what Boyd said, and, and tell me if this is just runs in, a, in too far off of a direction. But Boyd said that that word, that that word image, that psalm. Uh, that he he said I think and he I think he had some documentation on this but I think Moses is uh, borrowing that language from those pagan cultures to say we are those images of God. Um, you know, we don't carve images. We are. You want an image of God? Well, there's your brother. Or your sister. That's that image of God. So, and for and the way Boyd applied that, he said, um, when uh, when you in a pagan culture, when you gave honor or when you um, gave dishonor to that image, that little stone idol of Baal or whoever, mm -hmm. you were doing so to that God Himself. Or, uh, so, you know, when you apply that to the way Jesus is teaching us to uh, to live, um, you know, here is the perfect image of God, God as human, uh, demonstrating what it is to be, to bear that image. Um, and what does he say? Whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. Um, I like it. I like what? It. what um, what was the other thing? I, you know, uh, uh, when John says, um, whoever says he loves God but hates his brother, he's a liar. Mm -hmm. uh, that you can't – that maybe that's a, 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 you know, a part of what the real mystery is of Christianity um, is – and for that matter, I think of, of, of Judaism – is that we are those – image bears, those idols, if you right, will, right. worship one another. But the, but we, you know, what's Jesus' commandment? You know, love the Lord your God with our heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You are images of that God. I mean, those two things are hand in hand. They can't be separated from one another. And yeah. to me, you know, when you, when you bring in the incarnation of Christ in that, then what um, – 
what that does is it, you know, it, it's you can't do that dialectic thing where, um, you know, this is an other God. He's not really revealing um, who God is. He's becoming human to take care of this transactional problem uh, where somebody's got to deal with this getting punished for our sins bit. Um, instead, this is, uh, you know, that which was in the beginning, that which uh, he was in the beginning with God and without him all things, with him all things were made, without him nothing was made that was made. Uh-huh. Light and that light was the light, that life was the light of all people. That light became flesh, took on flesh. I mean, he when John talks about that in the first chapter, uh, the there's such a, a, a mystery about that. There's a, I know to me that's that chapter is supposed to take your breath away uh, when you read it. I think. Yeah. No, I, I like that. And uh, if you'll permit me, I'll I'll uh, run this down a little bit, going back to Genesis three. But if I think you I'll allow it. Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. Uh, but there is a kind of a tripartite understanding of the human subject in Genesis. First of all, the, uh, the beginning, let us make man, you know, we can assume the us there is Trinitarian. If you don't, uh, you know, if you don't think it's there in Genesis, it's certainly there in the New Testament that that who God is, is this plurality of persons. And so who we are then is not the absolute individual that bears the image. He says, let us make man in our image. And how many of them were there? Well, there were two of them. There was the male and the female. That is that we are not image bearers apart from this plurality of persons. And the plurality is, of course, our maleness and femaleness, but it's also then the idea of seeing who we are in and through the eyes of God. So that the image then involves, uh, first of all, the, the man and the woman and the understanding of who they are through the eyes of God. So there's three perspectives that are put into play here. Now, what idolatry does uh, we can say that idolatry removes the divine perspective and displaces it with the human perspective. It is that we no longer, in the idolatrous scene, it's not that we see ourselves in and through the eyes of God, but now the idolatrous scene is one that's in and through finite human eyes. And so the image has become removed from us. The image is an object. The idol is an object. It's no longer a person, uh, whereas the original image was. But, you know, who is controlling the idolatrous scene? We might think, oh, well, we've deified the idol. Well, that may be true, but also what you've done is deified the human perspective. Right. And Deified itself. Yeah, it, it is, a, if you want to take that into a psychoanalytic understanding, and I think this is precisely what Paul is doing. I think Paul is giving us a reading in Romans 7 of Genesis 3. And Genesis 3 is just giving us the, you know, Paul has already told this in Romans 1, what is the logic of idolatry, and why does idolatry re- lead to uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, misfunctioning sexuality. You know, we might not fit those things together. But the idea is that, well, you still have a tripartite perspective in Romans 7. What is that tripartite perspective? Well, there is the law. Notice in Romans 7, God doesn't really enter in. Uh, There's the law. There's the big other, you know, in the words of, Zizek, or if you want to do Freud, there's the superego. Who is that, though? Well, it's you. In other words, but it's you as a kind of uh, absolute, you know, uh, 
perversion of the law. So it, you know, in a Freudian understanding, the idea is that the father has been the father figure or the authority figure, or God, if you will, has been cathected into our own uh, dynamic of human personality. Paul still maintains the I, and the I, of course, in Greek is just the egg, you know, it's the ego is the, the transliteration of the word there. So there's the Freudian superego that Paul will call the law, uh, and that's all that Freud really means by it. It's just this absolute other. And then there's the ego, but the I then has become an object. And, you know, this, don't miss this, because what the, the whole thing is the idolater scene. Don't, don't confuse that, oh, just the ego or the I is the idol. And if you get rid of that, you've gotten rid of the problem. No, the whole construct is a perversion. Right. And so what is constituting, you know, it within the human psyche, this ego or this I, uh, is on the same order as the selim, the image, the, the image of the idol that now has become unobtainable. It's just as un unobtainable in the human psyche as it is in the idolatrous scene. That is that the I is in some way split. There's an alienation between the superego, the other, you know, the, the authority. That's you. That's still a part of, you know, you've taken the perspective of God. And the ego or the I, and never the twain shall meet. That these two, this alienation that is really reified for us, you know, the idolater think there in terms of Ezekiel is never going to be joined to the idol. He's no, never going to taint, hold out the image that the idol, uh, you know, the object or the the uh, the tselum is one that's unobtainable. So too the I has become an object for the self that is unobtainable. So the human disease, the human sickness that Paul is describing in Romans 7, I think is just illustrated for us in the idolatrous scene, which is going to posit then, you're going to use mystery here, but mystery is functioning to reify this, you know, superego, the law, the pervert and, and understand we're not talking about the mosaic law. Paul is talking about the perversion of the law. The law is holy, just and good, but the law that he's describing is the law of sin and death. Right. So that's the, the dynamic that Paul will sum up and say, This is the body of death. This is and so the idolatry scene is an image of what it looks like. Uh, in the human psyche uh, to when death drive takes over. And so the great travesty, I think, for somebody to come along and say, oh, there's, they can't distinguish between mystery of a legitimate or illegitimate kind. What they're really saying, they can't really distinguish the God of the New Testament from the God of, of the pagans from that idolatrous, superego notion of the authority, and so that this perverse God that no one should believe in has been uh, become standard part of a Christian understanding. People are imagining that this perverse understanding of God is the God of the New Testament. That's the tragedy in this. Right, and, uh, uh, and this can take us the dark places, but that may be why, maybe, that is, I think, why what we see of Christians, uh, the kind of culture that uh, a lot of folks who, who don't realize that that's what they've bought into, um, it doesn't look any different than the pagan uh, culture. This God, yeah, this God will punish, and he needs to punish. He needs to have sacrifice. He needs blood in the same way that the superego, you know, your problem is your, is your masochistic. We're all masochistic. We're all 
uh, we would sacrifice, you know, to the God. But of course, the God that that uh, is demanding sacrifice of the image within the self, you know, what that dynamic is picturing. Uh, the Paul calls that the body of death because it's a self-destructive masochistic system, and unfortunately, that's what many people think is, you know, I think in doctrines of penal substitution, and even just people's understanding of God, this is a pretty hateful God that they've fashioned for themselves and confused with the Father of Christ. Uh, the um, um, a moment ago, um, uh, y- 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 something you said struck a chord, and um, oh, it's just one of those things that just left me. I was thinking earlier of um, as I was listening to, I was editing one of the podcasts um, that's going out this week, and Joel uh, had a question about um, internal internal. Uh, your internal self and um, that and and she and you had a bit of a um, um, dialogue about yes she's always my hardest question (laughs) it was a good question that she a good point that I think she was bringing up Um, you were talking about um, being more I think externally oriented um, as opposed to this sort of um, chronic internal in uh, interior, interior reality—that's that, what I was looking for. Interiority, and she was like, "Well, you can't, you can't deny that we still have interior life." Um, and as she was talking, and as you were talking, and and I didn't sense that there was actually disagreement there as much as just a sharpening of of the point on both ends of that dialogue. But um, for me, that the idea of loving your neighbor as you love yourself is the, is really the, that um, re um, restatement or, or um, restoration of what has been perverted by keeping the other, the other by um, uh, you use the term masochistic, but I think um, what I see in culture is, a sadomasochistic um, where, you know, ultimately the the idolater is destroying everything around him, mm-hmm. sacrificing his own um, image, sacrificing his neighbor's image um, that uh, in order to satisfy this, uh, this angry uh, mm-hmm. deity that is ultimately other that the best we can get at is some, some image. Well, um, to me, what Jesus is trying to restore is you love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. That, that is the restoration of uh, that return to I am here with my neighbor, Adam and Eve, seeing themselves through the eyes of God, um, loving God, loving one another. Not, I mean, the, the interiority is there. I love myself, but how do I love myself? As I love my neighbor. How do I love my neighbor? As I love myself. I think um, the this, this simple truth is you can't love neighbor and not love self. You can love your neighbor if you don't understand yourself and your neighbor through the eyes of God. Nor can you love yourself um, Unless one also loves one neighbor and sees the neighbor through the eyes of God, um, this—I mean, this is right out of C.S. Lewis. I think he understood that very carefully. That um, that, that was uh, that those things are um, those go together. Mm-hmm. So we, yeah, go ahead. You, you you always bring the light and the positive part, and leave it to me to bring the darkness and the evil into. <laughs> You are the only person who has ever told me that in my life. (laughs) And that is that, yeah, obviously the counter to everything that I said is, is love because is love. uh, But what I described is this in, in 
internal antagonism that can, you know, Freud at first thought that sadism was primary, but then he discovered, you know, that in, in the clinic that, well, no, actually masochism seems to be the primal uh, drive and sadism is just masochism turned outward. Sure. But, but that's what, you know, if you're masochistic, you're probably sadistic too. That, 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 that. But see, and here I am, I'm, dry, I'm going down the, the dark path again. But love uh, is, is to, in some way, bring this together. But let, let me, I think the problem may be that in the kind of pop psychology preaching that you get, that people will stay with the dynamic of Romans 7 and talk about, well, you just need to learn to love yourself. Well, uh, yeah, but if you're still working within that dynamic of an alienation... Yourself is going to be an idol. <laughs> you, well, you, you still got the same problem. So the yeah. way that you get there is not through more intensely, you know... Uh, you know, admiring yourself in the mirror in the morning. And, Which is really hard for me to stop doing. I just... Yeah, I mean, some of us, it is a problem. <laughs> uh, for some of us, it's not, you know. Uh, <laughs> but the way you get there is Romans 8. Uh-huh. And the I, then, does not appear in Romans 8. Mm. There is no ego in Romans 8. So mm. to talk about loving yourself in the sense of Romans 7... No, not exactly that, but the idea is that that the love of Christ through which we experience, you know, our adoption by the Father and we cry out, Abba, you know, is to put ourselves, what displaces the I is the corporate identity that we have in Christ. Mm -hmm. This is sort of Richard Hayes' thing that, it's not that Christ is the object of our faith, but Christ is the subject of faith, that we then find ourselves as part of the body of Christ and take his position then in a, a relationship to God and see ourselves once again through the eyes of God. And if you do that, then obviously the love of Self, which in, in a sense, you know, uh, it, it's it's uh, uh, it's part of that. But I don't think, in other words, I think focusing on that in a kind of pop psychology. Uh, I'm thinking here of the uh, Andy Stanley, and who's Andy Stanley's father? Uh, Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley. Who, yeah, yeah uh, and he he was on the, about that a lot, and I think. With that, that to me, the issue is a, a not a very well developed uh, definition of what you mean by the word love. Um, but the uh, you know, if by love you mean have fond feelings for, uh, then although I think that fond feelings will come, but uh, aren't primary, aren't the most important thing, but. If by love you mean acknowledging um, the image of God in self and other, uh, and being willing to care for self and other, um, I, I just I never can get uh, get by this without talking about uh, Wendell Berry and we- a conversation between Wendell Berry and Wes Jackson from the Land Institute, where um, Wes Jackson talks about um, you know sharing. Uh, a farmer sharing uh, his uh, putting his own hay in his neighbor's barn because his neighbor's barn's closer to his own field. Uh, the neighbor um, doesn't mind because in return he gets use of his his uh, his bull uh, for um, uh, procreation with his uh, with his cattle. Um, meanwhile. The operating principle is there, you love your neighbor as you love yourself, that we, when you love neighbor, you have a friend for yourself. When you love self, you have 
you are giving your your neighbor a friend. So those that that it's about self care. It's not about self importance. Um, outside of you know, I, I think you know, to psychologize this because I've had to deal with this a lot in in trying to understand myself coming out of abusive relationships and abusive situations that there is a, a, a point where you say um, this is an unhealthy situation that I, that I um, as an image bearer of God uh, don't, shouldn't be a part of, um, which isn't to say I'm looking out for number one. Instead it's saying I can't be what God has, uh, what God wants for me to be. I can't take care of his image. Mm-hmm. By being here, that, that doesn't mean that someday uh, you don't have to end up on a cross. Jesus is always the primary example of how to love your neighbor as you love yourself. But mm-hmm. I think Paul um, understands that better than anybody um, in Philippians two. Um, it's I always noted that you know Jesus said, "Love your neighbor as you love yourself." That, you, that those two things go hand in hand. But then you've got Paul saying that you consider one another more important than yourselves in Philippians 2. Have, have the mind of Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but let go of that. He released it, made himself nothing. Um, but that's uh, that um, I, I, I wrestle with that. I don't. I don't have an answer. For that. I was thinking as you as you were talking about that. I was thinking of Desmond Tutu, uh-huh. who, you know, just uh, who is just a delightful person. You know, just continually laughing and, mm-hmm. and and warm, and and yet you look at at you know the terrible things that they that he's been through and the people of South Africa have been through. And so Desmond Tutu talks a lot about, a lot about forgiveness and love. Uh, that you know, the the I think that as much as Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu uh, deserves credit for holding that country together in the peace and reconciliation, you know, commission. What they and what that was taking place there was something very Christian. I don't know that anybody's ever done this in a in a in terms of a country before. Uh, and, but he describes this for himself as you know an individual that that uh, his ability to be able to forgive his enemies and to love them, uh, you know, most of us have no, probably not experienced the pain and suffering that he has. Mm-hmm. If he can do it, I'm not saying that you know. At least here's a model of somebody, and and his point is that. If the if you hate someone, in a sense, uh, that hatred uh, it ties you to that person, so that they are in a way definitive of who you are. Yeah. Uh, that the, the hatred itself uh, can become, you know, uh, larger than anything else about you. And so the idea of love is that, in a sense, love puts everything into its proper perspective. Probably no one is deserving. And, and even he says, well, yeah, you may, you may hate people, uh, you know, for what they've done or, uh, but in some way you've also got to reach a point of, of forgiveness. You may never cease hating what they've done. Yeah. So, so I think that's the thing that we all struggle with is that, uh, first of all, it's not this. This thing is not cheap, you know, that we're talking about. But on the other hand, it as Desmond Tutu concludes, you're not doing this for some sort of you know, uh, altru- altruism. But in fact, you're doing this ultimately because this is the healthiest thing for you. This is what makes you a whole person. And apart from this love of neighbor and even love of the enemy, there is the sense that we are controlled by the the hatred of the other, the hatred of the enemy. 
unfortunately, I'm afraid, you know, this, this brings us back. The God that is the big other, the God that is the, the perverse God of the law, as much as we might proclaim that we love this God, I'm afraid that we all have to be honest with ourselves, as Luther was, and say, no, actually, this is, I hate this God. Yeah. And then stop believing in him, because that's not who the God of the Bible is. John says yeah. it's not. There was a, did you ever see the movie Luther? Yeah. Came up? There's a scene in that movie where um, I may have talked about this on a podcast with you. I I use the same stories and stuff quite a bit, so I'm a one-trick pony, I suppose. But the um, <clears throat> there's a scene in which uh, Martin Luther is uh, struggling with his feelings about God that understanding of God. I don't know that he ever really got over that, but, uh, but one of the monks uh, that uh, he's, that he's with comes and says, and, and Luther acknowledges that he just can't ever escape. He feels like he's uh, just under judgment all the time. And, and the, uh, um, the monk says, then turn to Christ. And he gives him a cross and says, then turn to Christ Put yourself and uh, throw yourself at the mercy of Christ. Here I am, um, Christ. Uh, and that, uh, you know, what a moment. Um, you wonder uh, how, how many other people, uh, you know, deep down inside they felt that and never turned to Christ and never seen what I think Hebrews 1 uh, is trying to say, which is, no, this is, Christ is the revelation of the Father. This is what God is. Um, if that's your one-trick pony show, uh, that's worth just repeating again. <laughs> well, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> no, uh, and yeah. there's, there's also a, a moment, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I, I've always, um, and by the way, it, it, the irony of talking about this on MLK, uh, Martin Luther King uh, Day, when... Uh, you know, he, if anybody understood what it meant to love enemies, we will wear them down with our love. If anybody understood what it was to um, to not be owned by your enemies because you keep, you hang on to that hatred of them. I can't say that I am good at this yet at all. Um, I'm, I'm right up there with everybody else, I think. But... Here's, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's the Lord speaking, and he makes that statement um, about loving. Um, you've heard it said, um, love, your, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Of course, which nowhere does it say that. Um, but, it, you know, um, then he, he, he begins, he, he goes on and expounds on that and says, um, um, you know, whoever, ever, anybody can do good to those who are good to them. Anybody can sit with the people who want to sit with them. But you are children of the Father, um, which means to be like God, then you must love your enemy because God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's provided life to both. So if you want to be like him, that's God. He loves everybody. Then you love those who hate you. This still is ultimately, in my mind, the one of the things that I I try to ignore. I have to, I come back to it and realize I I don't know that I'll ever make that. Yeah, and uh, you know, Martin Luther King is the 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 that I think is what made the civil rights movement uh, work. And that, you know, that's not the reason he did it. He did it uh, because of his uh, profound understanding of who Christ is. But, you know, the, the, the racism uh, and hatred uh, that he was able to deflect and, and not return, what he always understood, I think, uh, he equated this with a kind of ignorance, and this is you know I'm not quite I I'm not quite have uh, of of an age that I could say uh, where I would have been uh, during the civil rights movement, 
But of course, the thing that I, I think we we may miss is that probably most white middle class people uh, were just nourished on racism, and that what King was was seeing uh, was a thing that for many of us that uh, has just become common knowledge uh, that that the bigoted white, you know, uh, separate but equal sorts of notions that were sold as some sort of, you know, uh, equality, of course, was just bigotry and hatred. And I'm afraid that the, the generation coming up may not get the feel for the times. That was pervasive. You know, that was uh, that with a generation that King was pretty much, you know, the, the, uh, alone in, in so much of what he did. And I think that the only place you get that sort of strength is is in and through Christ. There's an understanding um, that I, I find myself um, talking to peop- friends who are younger than me. I, I have um, the benefit of having friends who are uh, a little older than me and friends who are much younger than me. And and being able to uh, engage in, in conversations where I get to take some of the wisdom of the people older than me and try to share it with the people under me. Um, but uh, every now and then, you know, in in when I'm talking to some of my younger friends about some of the dialogue today uh, and some of the uh, what seems to them to be obvious. Um, Racism or obvious oppression or obvious uh, you know, obtuseness to the ways that people are um, held down or um, the ways that people are treated as less than. Um, and will come to me because I seem to be in, in, in the middle somewhere from them and say, how is it that, we, that people don't see it? And, you know, when I can get over my own frustration you know if that frustration comes i think with a lack of understanding um i find myself saying things like well you understand that you're speaking a different language than they do um you're you're talking about things that maybe they've never reflected on or it's hard to get past 50 years of of uh, worldview that's been so ingrained um, somehow the goal is to to show them the kind of love that can break through some of those barriers and begin to change the heart the way Jesus I think did you know which is uh, I mean, there were times when I think he was very confrontational and sometimes even angry um, in the way he had confronted um, bigotry or uh, um, power those kinds of things but Still, you know, ultimately, um, you challenge them with, you love this person and you love that person, and you find a way to, uh, I just, I don't know that I, I'm, I'm kind of at a point where I've, I've seen so much in recent years that has pushed me to, has challenged me to love the people that I think are, uh, those powers and those those uh, those people that I just push you toward the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, I, again I think that that's what we're talking about. That in a Christianity that would posit God as an absolute other, and if Christ then is seen in some way as the spokesman for this God, what happens with passages like the Sermon on the Mount is well, those are fine for Jesus. After all, he's divine, and we're not. And so there. not only is it God that's made inaccessible, it's the ethic of Christ that is in some way made undoable and even is not even uh, given to us then as an example. And so I think inherent with the Christianity that is a bigoted, racist 
Christianity is that Christianity that has for its God a perverse big other who is on the order of an idol or of an idolatrous religion. I think what you're getting in uh, Martin Luther King uh, in a Desmond Tutu is a Christianity that has in fact arrived at a very different understanding of the New Testament, the way that the New Testament functions, uh, the meaning of the atonement, uh, and the idea that you know uh, King is coming to is well, no, actually we're to we're to follow the ethics of Christ. That uh, that's something that's doable. That God has made accessible to us and that we can, in fact, in uh, following Christ, uh, imitate, you know, become imitators of God, that we can be holy as he is holy. Yeah. I appreciate you letting me kind of interact with that. Um, Maybe, uh, I think maybe in the future, one thing that I'd like to explore with you, I am, I'm, I'm wrestling, you know, recently with, when we talk about Desmond Tutu and, um, um, for that matter, Martin Luther King Jr., some of the other Christian um, folks who've done um, who've done liberation theology or who have lived out this uh, this kingdom idea in a public way, but also their engagement with the powers. Um, I'm I've been so standoffish about those pieces. Um, that piece in in the last ten years, and I'm starting to get a sense of uh, that that I I need to be more engaged, differently engaged than I used to be. But um, at some point, I think maybe that's the next conversation for me. You know, how does this understanding um, affect our engagement with the powers? Um, well, that's the, 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 I, you know, the name plowshares that we hit upon, of course, is not just following Isaiah and Micah, but uh, the, the plowshares was actually originally an origin, uh, a radical political group. And so I think, yeah, I think it's very appropriate. Where do we fall as, uh, you know, uh, in, in terms of engaging the powers? That would be a, a great conversation when I've had time to think about it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, uh, I guess we'll uh, let's call this one. Let's call this one done then. <laughs> <laughs>